Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. This is an RNZ podcast. Stop. Piki mai kake mai and a big welcome to our changing world. Ko Alison Balance Tene. Later on tonight, we'll be hearing about old ice. But first up, old age. I'm off to the University of Otago to talk with Yoram Barak. He's an associate professor of psychiatry and a consultant psychogeriatrician at Dunedin Hospital. He's very interested in the brain and how to keep our brains healthy and active as we get older. He says the greatest risk is loneliness. One of the greatest ever psychogeriatricians in the world, Professor uh, Robert Waldinger from Harvard University, says loneliness is toxic. We take it a step further. Loneliness is a killer in old age, in every age, but especially in old age. So your chances of suffering from a stroke are about 30% higher if you are lonely. Loneliness will kill you. It will shorten your life expectancy, eventually killing you. Some people claim that loneliness is a much greater public health hazard than smoking, obesity, or high blood pressure. And I don't think that they're wrong. Why do you think that is? God, that's that's a hard one. Easiest answer would be to say that loneliness probably disables to a great part your immune system. So, for example, if you go back to groundbreaking research in the 1980s and 90s, where researchers at the UCLA in California had people, had their brains scanned in what we call functional MRI. So they had people get into the functional MRI scanner and play a virtual game of passing the ball amongst a group of participants, and people were falsely told that actually what we are testing is, if you like, dexterity. So they have to sort of walk the, the, the tablet or the program faster and faster. But what we were actually testing, not we, the people at UCLA, was to see what happens when you are rejected. So people in the group sort of ignored you, they passed you the ball less and less, and you felt rejected, like, hey, guys, what's happening? I'm here too, pass me the ball, but nobody is passing you the ball. And you could see that in the brains of these people, the network that lighted up like a Christmas tree is the very exact same network that lights up when you are suffering from severe physical pain. So socially, when you are rejected, it's like someone is taking a hammer and breaking your bones. The brain can't distinguish between the physical, acute, severe pain of of breaking a bone or being rejected in social circumstances. That was just the beginning of our understanding of the damages of social isolation and loneliness onto our bodies. Because if you are chronically lonely, that means that you are struggling with chronic psychic, with chronic pain, mental pain. And we know that chronic pain eventually erodes your immune system. 
So you're more likely to have cancer, you're more likely to have stroke or heart disease. Eventually it kills you. Loneliness kills. So we really need to be pushing to, towards less screen time and more people time, educating people and helping them walk through relationships because only through maintaining supportive and loving relationships can you secure successful aging. It's not your midlife cholesterol or your midlife hypertension or even midlife obesity or smoking that will eventually make you, you know, sort of demented and, and disabled and, and, you know, have a, have a nasty sort of time as you age. It's your relationships. People in midlife who have a supportive, important relationship that they felt would be there for them if things went bad in their life, aged beautifully. Even if they did have a bit of a cholesterol raise in, in, in their laboratory tests. So it's all about that. So this could be having a partner you live with, this could be being part of an extended family, this could be having a strong network of friends, all of those? Well, yes and no, I'm afraid. Uh, having a partner, that means nothing. Because in the old days when we did research, we sort of figured that people who are living alone are lonely. And people who have a partner, or married, whatever, are doing okay. Not at all. It's the quality of the relationship. That's where the differences stand out. Just having a partner, but someone who is sort of a cold, strange relationship, which is just, you know, sort of due to inertia, it's still there because you've been together 30 years and the kids are gone and it's easier to just stick together rather than, you know, go through a process of maybe divorcing or separating and then investing in a new partnership. Not good enough. doesn't do anything for you. Actually, it may be even worse for you than getting divorced and getting on with your life. You need a partner that essentially you feel is a safety net for you if things go bad for you physically or mentally, if that quality, if that assurance, which is completely psychologically subjective, is not part of the relationship, then the relationship will do nothing for you. And it doesn't matter if outwardsly it looks like you're bickering and not having a lovey-dovey look-alike relationship. But if it's there, that belief, that assurance that your partner will be there for you, that is one hell of an insurance certificate for a great old age. And the complex interaction between loneliness, which has been found just recently to be one of the greatest risk factors for Alzheimer's disease. So if you are lonely in midlife, your chances of 20 or 30 years down the line to develop Alzheimer's disease are nearly tripled. So loneliness not only affects our hearts or our immune system and chances of having cancer, it affects the way our brains actually operate and what we remember and the way we construct our language and orient ourselves in the world. So it's the deep-seated insult to our brains when our brains are lonely. We need to invest in prevention and to understand that Alzheimer's disease is a biopsychosocial Phenomena, not just a biological phenomena driven by the immune system or by a virus. 
So there's not going to be a single pill that you as a doctor can prescribe and go, if you take this pill, you won't get Alzheimer's. So what do you prescribe to people? There are several things you really need to commit yourself to if you want to assure yourself and the people that you love of a, of a successful ageing. One of them is really invest, lean into your relationships, your partners, your family, your friends, and your community. And, and it's a different menu for different people. Some people are not people's persons, so they do really well investing in their families. Some people are not family-oriented and do, do really well investing in, in social networks and in their community. But that's probably the one greatest thing you could do. The other is change your nutrition. I mean, seriously, people eat themselves to death. We estimate that anywhere from 20 to 25% of cancers are driven by wrong nutrition. So we can prevent a lot of cancers. But there are nutritional plans out there uh, funded and researched by the American government which can reduce your risk of Alzheimer's disease by 55% within three or four years of adhering to these nutritional plans. Is this basic healthy eating? Mm, no, really. It's more complicated than that. It's called the mind diet. What are the keys to it? Well, olive oil. <laughs> Keep away from red meat. Keep away from dairy. These are difficult things to say to people who grew up in New Zealand. Lots of olive oil, lots of whole grains, huge amounts of vegetables and fruit fish. If you just must have meat, have chicken or turkey, give up on red meat. Absolutely keep away from alcohol. Berries, blueberries, blackberries, brilliant for your brain. Exercise? Mm, probably the greatest effect size has been shown for exercise as preventing Alzheimer's disease. But every couple of months we understand more and more what exercise actually means so it doesn't necessarily mean that you train for the marathon recent publication was very positive about the effects of yoga or tai chi but loads of exercise and probably if you ask me the the fourth leg for that you know sort of table of of brain goodness would be meditation one of the groundbreaking studies was called Forever Younger and actually showed that people who have meditated anywhere from 12 to 20 minutes a day, not, you know, take yourself off to a cave in, in Tibet and become a monk and meditate in a, in, in a lonely cave in the Himalayan mountains for 20 years. 12 to 20 minutes a day, you can meditate sitting cross-legged on the floor or in a chair or walking, or jogging, or even lying down in bed. And people who do meditate uh, most of their adult life, when you scan their brains using a brain CT, computerized tomography, and you show their brain scan to a neurologist who doesn't know their age, he would estimate, on average, that they are 20 years younger than their chronological age. So, relationships, food, exercise, and meditation can't get better than that. The other thing that people talk about is using your brain, about brain training and keeping active and doing crosswords and things. Is there value in that? Well, 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 that's, you know, sort of, that's a minefield. Yes, exercising your brain is brilliant, but how do you do that? So the, probably the best thing you could do 
if you want to be really sort of high-level exercise, uh, the American National Academy of Science and Medicine says play bridge. And again, it comes to the question of is it just that, you know, sort of challenge in playing bridge, the card game that is, which is very complex, or is it the fact that you the, you need a foursome and you're in a partnership and there's two against two and it's competitive and you need to communicate in a very, very complex manner the bidding and understanding the play of the hand is actually a very complex form of communication. So the idea about brain training is, and, and I'm afraid that some people just misunderstand that, is it's not just going through the motions of training your brain like Sudoku or doing a crossword puzzle. It is challenging your brain with novel information that needs to be synthesized. So the idea is, yes, exercise your brain, playing bridge or listening to classical music, which is a huge challenge to the human brain. Music is such a novel stimuli and it is being synthesized in different parts of our brains than where we synthesize you know sort of just regular information or mathematics or, or so it is a huge challenge so try to play a musical instrument learn a new language play bridge listen to classical music all these have been shown to be really great for your brain and then of course Playing bridge or listening to music can also incorporate social interaction. Recent research coming out of China, looking at, at, at over 15,000 elderly Chinese men and following them up for about five years and seeing that the ones who read the newspaper regularly, played mahjong regularly, and kept betting on horse racing regularly, were doing really well, keeping Alzheimer's away. And you would think, what? Are we going to recommend horse race betting? But I think, just like we, we spoke before, it's not about the betting, it's about going down to the local, whatever it is, bet shop, uh, and meeting your mates and talking to them and, and you know, to, you know, sort of synthesizing information that you learned or they learned about this source or this jockey and the whole, the whole sort of social interaction that comes together when, when people are involved in something they're excited about and it's competitive and there may be, you know, even a prize at the end of the day. And that keeps your brain younger. Thanks, Yoram. That was Yoram Barak from the Dunedin School of Medicine at the University of Otago. Kei te whakaronga mai koe ki tō tātou au horihori, hei hōtaka e pāna ki tō tātou au whānui. I'm Alison Balance and this is Our Changing World. Now, what old ice can tell us about future sea level rise? The IPCC is the international body of scientists tasked by the United Nations with assessing climate change science. A month ago, it released a special report on global warming of 1.5 degrees C. It states very starkly that limiting warming to 1.5 degrees is possible within the laws of chemistry and physics, but doing so would require unprecedented changes. And while we decide whether or not to act, we're also discovering that the world's oceans are heating up faster than we expected, and the ice keeps melting, and how ice melted in the past can give us clues as to how much sea level rise we can expect in the future. 
daughter Dahl Jensen is a paleoclimate expert from the University of Copenhagen in Denmark. She's been in New Zealand to deliver the annual ST Lee lecture at Victoria University of Wellington. I took the opportunity to sit down with daughter and Andrew McIntosh from the university's Antarctic Research Centre to compare ice and melting in Antarctica and Greenland. Greenland is the biggest island in the world and it uh, contains the second biggest ice sheet. It's only dwarfed by Antarctica. So if Greenland melted away, we would get about seven metres of sea level rise. And uh, I work with uh, ice core research, so we try to look back in time and see what happened to the Greenland ice sheet if we look at previous warm climate periods. So how much ice is there on Greenland? And I suppose my question, there's two parts to that. One is how thick does it get and then what is its volume overall? It's up to about 3,000 metres thick and uh, the volume is uh, 3 million cubic uh, kilometres. Now, Andrew, you're a bit more of an Antarctic Southern Hemisphere expert. Can you paint a picture of Antarctic for me in comparison to Greenland? Antarctica is much larger, both in terms of the area um, but also the ice that's uh, that's locked up. Um, but it has two sort of somewhat independent ice sheets, uh, the West Antarctic Ice Sheet and the East Antarctic Ice Sheet. Uh, and both have, uh, have been changing in one way or another, but it's the West Antarctic Ice Sheet that has gained the most attention for the mass loss that's occurred uh, recently. And how much ice are we talking about in Antarctica? Well, the West Antarctic Ice Sheet uh, has about about five metres of uh, sea level equivalent, but uh, you wouldn't necessarily lose all of that because some of it's on bedrock that's uh, above above ground, so you might uh, lose some of it and leave some, some ice on the mountains. Um, in, uh, in East Antarctica, it's more like 52 metres of sea level equivalent. Um, but again, answering that question is not that straightforward in some respects because uh, the amount of ice that's added to the ocean depends on a whole bunch of different factors. Daughter, can you tell me about the research that you've been doing in, in Greenland? You've been working there for quite a while. What does that research entail? Well, we've been drilling uh, deep ice cores uh, from the top of the Greenland ice sheet to the bedrock. And uh, by studying the, the ice, we, we study the climate back in time. In Greenland, we get ice uh, that gets uh, about uh, 130,000 years old. So we're especially studying um, the deepest ice closest to the bedrock from the last interglacial where it was warmer than the present and trying to estimate how warm was it at that time and how was the loss from the Korean ice sheet. During the glacial time, uh, we also see a lot of very abrupt changes in the Korean ice sheet. So it's important to study these abrupt changes uh, to understand our climate system and understand it, what can cause the, the climate to make very abrupt changes. And it is really abrupt changes because it's warming of about 15 degrees over just 50 years. So it's actually much more abrupt than what we're seeing at present. And in the last interglacial, that was when? Can you remind me? It's uh, from 115,000 to 130,000 years before present. What was the climate like then compared to now? It was um, a warm period and uh, the results we get from the green ice sheet shows it was uh, in average five degrees warmer than the present and this is temperatures over Greenland. It's in the Arctic, so it's not global mean temperatures. But it's interesting because this is the warming we'll expect in the Arctic in year 2100. So it's a good analogue. High latitudes, the Arctic, it's going to warm more than around the equator. That's right, and probably also more than Antarctica as far as, as we know at present. 
for uh, Antarctica in the last interglacial, I guess there was some chance that it lost ice as well, just um, like Greenland. And, and one of the big questions is exactly how much, because uh, we can see from uh, coral reef records that have been dated around the world that sea level was higher um, than present, something like six to nine metres higher than present. Uh, and, I mean, that water came from somewhere. We're not quite sure where at the moment. What do you think? So six to nine metres of water, where do you think it might have come from? Did it all come from Greenland? That's what people believed uh, 10 years ago. But the, the results we get from the deep ice cores from Greenland show that uh, Greenland at most uh, lost what was equivalent to two metres of sea level rise. So we'll have to pass the ball to Antarctica because uh, we have to get about four to five metres of sea level rise from Antarctica. So in Antarctica, we, we have very short observational records of how the ice sheet's been changing just in the recent decades and so on. And so records from previous warm periods are very important for understanding what the ice sheet might do and sort of trying to understand the parts of it that are sensitive. Uh, and one of the big surprises lately is the um, possibility that uh, East Antarctica has lost a bit more ice in the past than what we previously thought. And uh, the implication is it could do the same in the future. What's the IPCC thinking at the moment? They've been in the news with their saying, well, this is what would you'd have to do to you know, stick at a one and a half degrees sure. temperature rise, but if you don't act very, very quickly, then it's clearly going to be more than that. Yeah, I guess one of the interesting things that came out of the 1.5 report, or at least an implication of it, would be that uh, there might be sort of thresholds in ice sheet response. Uh, so, in other words, say for a four-degree warming, we would expect a very large response, um, but for, say, a two-degree warming, it could be smaller. And so one of the key questions at the moment is where the thresholds really lie for um, both ice sheets. And I think we don't know yet, um, and that's a good motivation for doing more science to understand really how ice sheets respond to climate change, and that's partly uh, could partly be driven through uh, paleo climate work, like um, Daughter's talking about, um, partly through ice sheet modelling, uh, and through some combination, we can hopefully get a better understanding of where the thresholds actually lie for potentially losing ice sheets in the relatively near future. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's very true. Yeah. By studying uh, the Greenland ice sheets and realizing that there's a lot of sea level that has to come from Antarctica, it brings a lot of attention to Antarctica because uh, at present the the Antarctic ice sheet is not not reacting as as much as the Greenland ice sheet. But about four to five meters of sea level rise, uh, it's about the size of of Western Antarctica. And uh, the Western Arctic ice sheet is, is, is very interesting in the way that uh, the bedrock under the ice sheet is down in 1.5 kilometers depth under the present sea level. So you've got a, a big body of ice that's heavy enough to stand on the bottom. But you know, we know that ice is lighter than water. So if you start thinning this body, there's a risk that over some centuries will pop up like an iceberg and lose its connection to the bed. And at that time, it will contribute to sea level rise. So it, it's, it's one of the risks we have in our future to get a pretty fast uh, sea level rise, corresponding to what we saw during the Amian, if Western Antarctica starts to disintegrate. Ice cores are not telling us anything about this. I mean, we've studied the, the deep ice cores in Antarctica to see if we can do the same kind of studies as we've done in Greenland to, to understand uh, what the elevation changes have been. But it's not been very um, successful because all the big ice cores are in, in eastern Antarctica on the very top point and they don't react very much. In recent times, um, we've seen in East Antarctica, the ice sheet has started to thin and add a bit of mass to the ocean, particularly around Wilkes Land and at Totten Glacier. And this is roughly speaking 
sort of between Australia and New Zealand dead south. But there's also some paleoclimate evidence that's coming out from that part of Antarctica that's indicating the ice um, that ice might have been lost in the past. It's a little bit indirect. Um, we're using proxy evidence, so from, from marine sedimentary records. This is work that's um, uh, that Rob Mackay in the Antarctic Research Centre has um, been leading, and he just published a recent paper with a group uh, from the UK and other places that showed um, that uh, during the last interglacial, so the period daughter has been talking about, uh, the Wilkes Land margin may have lost uh, a bit of ice. So we're just starting to, to get a few clues that this part of East Antarctica that we thought of as a kind of a sleeping giant may be actually waking up now and could add more in the future. Are you seeing much melting already in Greenland? We are seeing a lot of melting and uh, we've been following the melting, especially in the time of the satellites where it's been, we've been able to make more precise uh, measurements and, and full measurements over the whole ice sheet. So we see an uh, increasing and accelerating loss of mass from the Greenland ice sheet. Half of it is uh, melt along the, the, the marginal parts of the Greenland ice sheet and half of it is discharge of ice being streamed out from the ice streams into the water. Um, so we see these two components of mass loss from, from Greenland. In the very recent years, we've had a sea level rise of about uh, 4 millimeters per year. And uh, I think the best estimates from Greenland is the mass loss from Greenland is about 0 0.8 millimeters per year. The biggest component is still the, the thermal expansion of the ocean water because it's warming. And the second largest contribution is, is all the Arctic glaciers, the smaller glaciers, uh, especially on the northern hemisphere. Yeah, I think Greenland will soon overtake the other components and be the biggest component of mass loss we have. So Antarctica is already adding mass to the oceans, just less than Greenland, and the mechanisms by which it's losing mass are, are different. Um, so it doesn't have um, the surface melting component um, to the same degree. There's a little bit of surface melt in Antarctica, but it's just not the annual melt cycle that you see in Greenland. Um, and in Antarctica, we're talking about um, ice flow, ice dynamics, and, uh, and also um, particularly melt underneath ice shelves and the way that that affects the grounding line, which is the part where the grounded glacier sort of peels off into the ocean. And if that retreats back, then um, ice sheets tend to lose more mass. And uh, that was a little bit like what Daughter was talking about with the deep um, basins that lie underneath West Antarctica. Uh, as the ocean warms, it's likely that we'll expect to see uh, grounding lines retreating and even more mass loss. Um, but there's still there's a lot of science to do to work out exactly how that's going to occur. And even um, within uh, the glaciological community, there are some debates about, for example, whether um, progressive, unstoppable ice loss has already begun in West Antarctica or whether we might see a sort of a regrounding and a slowing down as ice retreats into sort of more stable positions again. And, and, and uh, the jury's still out on that a little bit. Sea level rise is one of the very great concerns we have uh, in the warming uh, climate because uh, so big parts of, uh, of our population lives very close to, to the ocean, which also is true for New Zealand. And still it's, it's one of the, the, the numbers that has the greatest uncertainty of all. Copenhagen, where I stay in Denmark, uh, the best predictions are that sea level rise in year 2100 will be 60 centimetres, but the error on it is 60 centimetres as well. So science is telling us that uh, the sea level rise will be between 0 and 1.2 metres, which is, is scary that we don't know, know this number better. So I think it's really important to see if whatever we can do in science to, to get a better understanding on, on what's going to happen.
For sea level rise in New Zealand, um, it's hard to, to say. There are, there are a number of reasons for this. Uh, if you compare uh, Denmark and New Zealand, one big difference is that we're a very tectonically active country. So there's a lot of um, uplift and, and sinking of land that's independent of global sea level change. Uh, and we need to know that as well in order to make um, good predictions of future sea level. The other part of it is that... Um, how sea level changes here will be affected by where the ice loss actually occurs. So if in the future there's more um, ice loss from Greenland, we would expect to see a larger sea level rise in New Zealand. And conversely, if there's more ice loss from Antarctica, um, then you would see a larger change in the northern hemisphere. Can you explain why that is? (laughs) It sort of seems a bit counterintuitive, doesn't it? But it's to do with um, the gravitational attraction of the ocean to the ice sheet. So as the ice sheet loses mass... Um, the ocean is no longer so attracted to it, so it sort of falls away more close to the ice sheet, and then you get a rise at the other end of the world. It's sort of you need a sort of a bathtub where somehow you've got more of an attractor at one end that disappears, and a sort of a sloshing to the other end, if you like. Um, but for Antarctica, it's also not that straightforward. So it depends on exactly where the ice loss occurs in Antarctica. So um, in fact, it sounds like good news for New Zealand, you know, for. If we lose some mass in Antarctica, we won't see much of a rise here. But actually, uh, if most of the mass loss is in West Antarctica, that's not true. So you do actually see a large rise here. So I, I think it's, in some respects it's easier to make a calculation like this for Denmark than it is for New Zealand um, because of the, the uncertainties surrounding tectonics. Um, but the things I was talking about with gravitational attraction of ice sheets and its effect on sea level apply to both places, actually. We, and is just one of the components, and there are many, um, that creates a, the large uncertainty that daughter was just referring to. Yeah. Well, I think one of the biggest <laughs> uncertainties is our behaviour in the future yeah. because, of course, it depends on, on how, how we react and uh, yeah. how, mu- how much greenhouse gases we put in the atmosphere and how, how strong the temperature change is going to be. We're sort of playing with fire a little bit here by warming our climate and not knowing quite when we might uh, instigate a a massive change in in ice sheets and cause even more dramatic sea level rise. I mean, I think a certain amount of sea level rise is already built into our system right now. Well, it is because uh, the the greenhouse gases, especially the the carbon dioxide we have released into the atmosphere, stays there for about 200 years. So that's a timescale of 200 years we're we're playing with, and we've already done that. Then when we get to the ice sheets, we are talking about timescales of of thousands to ten thousands of years in in reaction time. So it's not straightforward to to calculate the the, the results of what we're doing because they take, take such a long time to manifest. Thanks, daughter. Daughter Dahl Jensen is with the Niels Bohr Institute at the University of Copenhagen in Denmark. And Andrew McIntosh is director of the Antarctic Research Centre at Victoria University of Wellington. And that's the show. Thanks for listening. You can listen to these stories again or find out more at our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. I'm back next week, but for now it's good night from me, Alison Balance. Kia pai tō pō.